Persuasive words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, today we are going to talk a little bit about sophistry. But yes. first, I'd like to say something. I want to try like a, an edgy new format. Uh, so Ryan Seacrest is now. Is, <laughs> Can I just interrupt? By the way, America, thank me because we almost did a whole episode on about what you're to hear. I could do, I could do uh, a whole okay, episode. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on your lines. Go. I could completely do it. Ryan Seacrest is. Um, uh, the new co-host for Kelly Ripa. And basically he got $17 million to a contract and they built him also built him a radio studio um, in the, cause he does his radio show in LA normally. So he'll do it from New York and they, they build him a studio in, I guess, ABC studios. So all this, right? Like it would seem like they'd already have one there. Probably. You, you, would have, you could just mix and match parts. All of this. And Mr. Seacrest is, Doing things like, hey, there's this new trend on Facebook. List three concerts, one of which you've been to, two, or two of which you've been to, one of which you hadn't. Let's play. Ooh. Like, t- taking the inane lists from Facebook uh, and, and it, like, repeating them on the morning show for $17 million. Yeah. Well, that's good, good work if you can get it. Uh, yeah. I, he might be uh, – there are – are a few people in the world that I'm less interested in than him. So I, uh, and, uh, the, uh, whatever it was, there used to be Regis and Regis and Kathy and Regis and Kelly. And I loved Regis. I thought Regis was hilarious. Yeah, I can say that I'm, uh, just slightly more interested in Regis than I am in Seacrest. This guy's going bunkles. Like I used to, <laughs> I used to love Regis. I, it's just like, it's like, I don't know. just, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not very interested in that. For me, actually, like I, if you ever, those of you who want to ever like, uh, you know, hostile nations who think I'm a threat and you ever want to get secrets from me, just put me in a um, hospital waiting room and make me watch morning TV. So between that uh, and the View, you probably get any secret out of me you want to. I would just say, please stop, stop. The View is. A hundred thousand times more interesting than Seacrest. A hundred thousand times. Well, again, the only time I've ever watched either of those shows is, again, when I'm in a hospital waiting room or a doctor's office, and it's often too loud that I can't ignore it instead of reading. So it's not my not my thing. All right, Bill. So let's try our list. Bring in the uh, daytime TV demo. I'm going to give three foods, three types of meat, two of which I've eaten, one of which I haven't. You okay. see how well you know me. All so right, very good. Beef. Okay. Chicken. Okay. Kangaroo. I'm going to go kangaroo. Yeah. There you hey. go. See, look at this. Whoa. Hey. hey. Yeah, this is where you need the uh, laugh track and the couple like So that, yeah. so Ryan Seacrest is literally doing stuff like that. Yeah. And making $17 million dollars wow. to do it. Yeah. I'm, I've actually had kangaroo. I, see, that's. Yeah, I wouldn't have. You, 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 we would have had a different list. So, Bill, on to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> as actually, we've just killed our audience listening yeah. to. Uh, anyway. 
again, if 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 Seacrest is any judge, man, I mean, this is uh, yeah, maybe we maybe we'll get the uh, daytime demo. Wow, wow. I mean, think of it. We are actually are broadcasting this on Facebook Live during the day. Okay, there we go. So we it would not be a very hard for us to just transfer over. No, 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 no. Okay, very good. Well, this this thing doesn't work out with uh, with, uh, uh, Kathy. No, I can't even know who is it. It's not Kathy Lee. It's uh, who is with her now? Ripa, Kelly Ripka, Ripa, Kelly Ripa. Yeah. Oh, okay. So if this doesn't work out, we're available. Very yeah, good. We, yeah, we could go together. We're a package deal, though. Yeah, we are. We do. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. We we all go down together. You go, I go. Exactly. That's a great great scene in that movie. Uh, so so for, well, this started because I was listening to the Slate Political Gab Fest uh, this weekend, which is a great political podcast, and I shared it with you because there is a columnist. Who shall be named as soon as we remember his name. Who shall be named right now. <laughs> a columnist named uh, Brett Stevens. And he's a new conservative kind of right of center columnist for the New York Times. And his first column was April 20th, 2017, called The Climate of Complete Certainty. And he opens with an ellipsis from, um, it's only attributed to an old Jew of, Gal- of um, Gallica. And it says this, um, when someone is honestly... 55% right, that's very good, and there's no wrangling. And if someone is 60% right, it's wonderful. It's great luck, and let him thank God. But what's to be said about 75% right? Why is people say this is suspicious? Well, and what about 100% right? Whoever says he's 100% right is a fanatic, a thug, and the worst kind of rascal. Um, who said that? Who did they say say that? An old Jew of Gallica, Gal- Gal- Galicia. See, I think I think I think Bob down to diner actually said that first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, could, can you you could just make that up? A ancient wise person. Yeah, I, I don't know. At yeah. the Dunkin' Donuts in it's Feasterville. A, it's a strange. <laughs> it's a, no. There's no. That's it's not, all cops. That's, our, see, that's no. This you're going to do that in your first column for the New York Times. Oh my gosh! There you go. Well, uh, uh, as so Bob, Brett Stevens, as as, yeah, as Bob at the dry cleaner always would say. That's ancient. So antiquity lends it some old gravitas. Bob, old Bob down at the uh, beat the laundry on the rocks, <laughs> <laughs> and he would say this. That was as he was beating. As he was being, yes, he but, was a wise soul. So on that podcast, I showed. I think you. he was Welch. <laughs> I used to Welch on bet too. So. I would gladly pay you Tuesday. Oh, for a Bob! Today. Oh, Bob! Is a beating on the rock? <laughs> I'm sixty-four percent right. All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. All right, I'm going to give you a list, which is from Gal. <laughs> Three people, Bill. Um, well, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, this column, you know, the the panel on the Slate Political Gab Fest discussed this, and um, Jeff uh, or is it, is it Plotz, David Plotz, who is kind of the center host there. He he was applauding this column as basically just the kind of thing that should be in the New York Times. Uh, that he he challenged the sort of uh, what he saw what what. You know, many people see as the arrogance and 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 sort of overconfidence of the Clinton campaign. He challenged uh, some of the certainty on climate science. Not, you no, know, he's not a climate change denier, and he's not a denier that humans have an effect. But he he thinks that how dealing with it is more complex, and the, and the, the the advocates and activists are more strident and certain than the actual scientists as far as like impacts and certain things like that. So at least that's his argument. Yeah. And Emily Bazelon, she thought this was, she was not as appreciative of the article. And I should say the reason why David Plott was, and John Dickerson were, were appreciative is 
their fear of the banning of heterodoxy in institutions. Right. Right. That this kind of everybody's got to toe the party line, and they think that's something healthy about um, a voice like this in the New York Times. So it doesn't. So it doesn't become ossified right. and groupthink. And yeah. Emily yeah. Bazelon was not as as sympathetic, and she was kind of implying that maybe there was a little sophistry. At least I thought. Right. Yeah, and we'd probably be good um, <laughs> to give a definition of sophistry and why it has a negative connotation historically. So that's uh, get on our little time machine and go back, <laughs> go back to Plato's uh, uh, Plato's view of what was going on with Socrates. Yeah, I mean, originally in the fifth century, uh, you know, around the turn of the fifth century, there's I think there's sophists. Good, the good. I mean, we're talking about the good old fifth century, yeah, the good fifth, old. fifth century BCE. Yeah, right, it would, this would be sixth, like late, like sixth and fifth, right? Like, um, yeah, like be, after after the pre-Socratic philosophers in, in the four hundreds. And so, so, like, so philosopher just means right, lover of wisdom. But mm-hmm. the pre-Socratics and a fine beer, which exactly don't don't most of the pre-Socratic studies start with Thales, who thought everything was made up of water, right? I mean, yeah, they have different. They have either, either everything is fire, everything's moving. Nothing's moving, you know, everything's changing, nothing's changing. They had kind of one, they had one extreme version of what we all go down and now see it in balanced ways. But they were. Yeah, and basically they're, they're trying to move beyond Homeric myth yeah. and things like this to understand the nature of reality. Heraclitus, Parmenides, those guys. Democritus. Yeah. yeah. So after that, there became a greater demand for, um, for learning. It's funny that, that I just reading something that the pre Socratics didn't call themselves philosophers. They, they thought they were doing, um, Historie, which is like inquiry, yeah. uh, and and the sophists saw themselves as teaching wisdom, and there were basically these people that w- would do, you know, for patrician kind of children, you know, children who were, you know, part of the ruling class of Athens, which which democratic, I guess, right among the ruling class, and right. there would be sort of open democratic debate, and so they would train the the learned, you know, they would make learned citizens out of you know people's kids you know they would do private instruction and there was a special emphasis on rhetoric because you needed to be able to communicate you know your opinions and and the and persuade yeah and there there's the way that so i mean a lot of these were just like sort of you know classical teachers that were you know versed in lots of antiquities best insights and knowledge but in socrates in, in plato's work they become almost a foil for Socrates. Right. right now, Socrates and the Sophists use similar method, like the Socratic dialogue and things like that, but to different ends. Right, and 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 Socrates and some other literature is accused of being a Sophist. Matter of fact, there's a play I can't remember, an ancient Greek play where he is a he's numbered with the Sophist. Yeah, and you and if you were not to the untrained eye, that might not be a a, a crazy observation because if you if you're not and yeah, we're or rely on Plato's portrait of Socrates right. as teacher, but you know Socrates does use similar methods and seems skeptical. I mean, he, and yet, uh, the, you, what where the where the sophists don't come off quite so well is where they are seen as not conducting their debates and arguments for an ultimate purpose or an ultimate truth. They're really not concerned with the connection between truth, virtue, and the good life. They, they're seen as utilitarian. Right. And people that are just making arguments for argument's sake. Again, it's a very watered down, reductive explanation, but it'll serve our purposes. Yeah, too. and a good it's kind of a, a summary um, of a of a of a prototype of a sophist would be man is the measure of all things. Would yeah. be a would be a 
famous sophist quote. That's why in some levels they kind of get a revival both in the 19th century and among some post-modern uh, thinkers as being kind of actually the heroes of the story because they, they called into question um, some of the standard thinking at the time. You know, the other thing that was shifting here was the nature of what was important to learn. Uh, the old warrior class, the aristocracy warrior class, uh, had a certain kind of approach to ethics. Again, ethics was basically skill at ruling uh, and managing, and uh, it was the great man's way of teaching the next generation of great men how to be, you know, leaders, conquerors, and heads of the of the polos. Of we the teach city. them in fantastic ways. Just <laughs> we teach them our ethical training is so amazing, and it's excellent. I mean, we're excellent. That's right. That's that's where you go. The the move from when politicians ceased to be warrior farmers, or that's how they were in the early republic, and become uh, for all intents purposes lawyers. That's the <laughs> shift, you know. And yeah. uh, and so there's also a cultural kind of backlash against these teachers. They were uh, hired guns. I mean, they were teaching for hire. Uh, matter of fact, they went around trying to shape people's lives for money. Sounds a lot like ministers and pastors, and uh, <laughs> and not always. That concerned about the truth, that sounds an awful lot like pastors in America in the 21st century, but I digress. Yeah, and so when all historical reductionism aside, when somebody uses the term today, as I was using it, sophistry, they mean basically people that are kind of the stereotype or, or the, the character that maybe we get of them in the Platonic dialogues that are. And so, but this is where I think this is so important in knowing how to spot it is that we see so much of this all over cable news, even in print media, where people are making arguments in the, in, that serve their own political group's interest or some special interest advocacy groups like a corporation or uh, the NRA or something like this. And, and you can tell— I'm an energy voter. Exactly. Right, exactly. Um, who, the, <laughs> who the hell is not an energy voter? Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I love the. I love when like I love that they destroyed my golf coast. I love as, that they. Did as soon that. as a company corporation buys ad time on cable news networks to tell me that they're environmentally responsible, I just assume they're not. I want the pipeline because I want my children playing on top of it. It's so cool in our backyard to have this pipeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to have a. You don't have to uh, have a uh, an ad for. Um, Johnny Walker that says this is good whiskey. Or we, we promise we're not like poisoning you. I mean, even though it's a little poisonous in, in excess. But. Hi, I'm an energy voter, and I'm really excited that we're turning back the EPA rules because with the air being much worse in the future, I can get my kids inside to really do the important study that they need to do instead of being outside playing with clean air. Thank you, energy voters. And maybe my kid will be a mutant, like in the X Men, with superpowers. Should be very good. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so basically, you have the sense where you see people that, that are not engaged in a pursuit of the truth, but just an advocacy of a position, and they and they sometimes make very savvy arguments. Very savvy. They're, but yeah, the interest is winning an argument or changing your mind, not actually getting to the heart of the matter. Right, and that is one thing I did appreciate about this about Brett Stevens' column because he was talking about. You know, charitably read, there's a call for open-mindedness, which I think is always important. But, you know, there's so often you can just tell when somebody is just advocating the talking points that, that nothing – that they could have the conversation without actually hearing anything the other person said, you know, right. because, because they already know what they're going to argue. And it's sort of it, – it just seems pointless. And so I think – and even if they're using facts, I mean, which is 
I mean, gosh, that's like a bonus. Oh my gosh, somebody actually used facts. But even it's like we were talking about in that Harry Frankfurt book on the truth, where he's saying like use of the facts and respect for them does not mean necessarily that you're committed to the truth and its pursuit because you can grab a fact and shade it uh, in, in such a way that you're not actually using it honestly to yeah. actually give a, the fullest picture of reality. Yeah, we are, you know, all life form are carbon-based life forms. So therefore, the more carbon emissions we have, it'll be better for life. Thank you. Drop the mic. <laughs> I loved in the first Star Trek movie, the motion picture, when the, the V'ger like possesses that bald woman and Hello, carbon unit, Kirk unit. What are all these carbon units? (laughs) No, you know, I think the thing about it is, um, you know, a more fair approach to um, maybe what the Sophist project was, was, uh, again, there's there's a real room for rhetoric. In other words, a lot of what we try to do is to shape people through our words and to move them. And uh, again, if you're going to get politics done or commerce done, if you're trying to sell a project at work, if you're trying to get your students to move from the recess <laughs> back into classroom, whatever, uh, as ministers, I mean, uh, I gave a presentation uh, Sunday to try to help us come up with a strategic plan. Uh, there certainly were facts in that presentation, but there was also, okay, if we're going to do this, we have to begin to think this way, okay? Uh, that wasn't that was not that was less reason than it was rhetoric saying okay we have to begin to change the way we do so you know there's a reason that both rhetoric and logic are part of the seven you know great um liberal arts uh, both are necessary it seems to be the problem is when you know we lose sight of what each role of, of you know what the role of each uh art is in in terms of public discourse or religious discourse or even for that matter you know, even personal relationships. Yeah, it's interesting too because the the ancient, the classical education model was grammar first, and because kids like fact, grammar is not just words, but facts, structure, data, history, yeah. you know. and then logic, where you learn the abstract reasoning part and how to connect the grammar, and then finally the finishing capstone is is rhetoric, where where you actually are learning now to ex, to express, to persuade, to argue, and I think there's something to it. But what happens is almost like you get rid of. Um, some the worst form of sophistry in our culture is you get rid of grammar and logic and you just kind of you just argue. Right. We are going to have such fantastic healthcare. It it's going to be beautiful, like a big piece of chocolate cake. <laughs> right. Go. This is my microphone. I paid for this time. You know. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah. there's not there was no nothing. I mean, it was a setup. We know now that that was a total setup. Ronald Reagan. If you don't, that was what the. Uh, New Hampshire primary, I think, uh, Ronald Reagan in the New Hampshire primary. Yeah. But in 1980, I believe it was. Anyway. Um, but, you know, I think the thing that it's important to kind of, uh, you know, look at in that even from a historical perspective, um, the Enlightenment in many ways, uh, at least theoretically, now they didn't, I mean, theoretically, they said really all that matters is logic. And they elevated logic to such a degree First of all, that it was beyond the scope of what it really could handle. I mean, the idea of it uh, as a particular kind of logic or a particular kind of fact is all there is. Uh, you know, empirical discovery is the only kind of way we can know something. I mean, that's the extreme version where it turned out. And for a while, persuasion, rhetoric, uh, those kind of things were not valued. And um, 
And but you can never keep them down. They come back in strange ways, like romanticism and different other ways. And the postmodern moment, we may be seeing a correction to this kind of hyper view that reason will conquer all. And so you get some some legitimate questions within postmodernity. But then you get uh, an age where we don't really ma- the facts don't matter. You know, we, that's that's the shadow side of where we're at right now in the post um, post enlightenment period. Yeah, and I think that you know Leslie Newbigin talked about, and we've talked about this before, but I, I think this is very helpful. He, he talked about rather than objective or subjective, he talked about public truth. You know, public versus private truth. Like you know, I think you know uh, pineapples on a pizza or, or is is blasphemous, but that's a private truth. I wouldn't want to have to make a case for that in the public square. I, I would be willing to make a case for <laughs> yeah, that in the public well, square. We'll make it right here. Yeah. Well, there you go. You can, <laughs> you know, but there are certain. So it, it's it, you know, Newbigin didn't want to dismiss the subjective pole, and he's actually borrowing from Polanyi here, but he didn't want to dismiss the subjective pole of human inquiry and knowledge, but just how, like, you know, how does science work? It's, you say, or, you know, peer-reviewed journals, like, well, here, I think that this experiment will stand up in any lab. And I think that, you know, he wants to say that we should have that kind of posture. I think this approach to the dignity of the human person, like, I, I, I'll present this in any context and in a back and forth, I think this will emerge, or whatever emerges of what I'm saying, will be. We'll see that as a shared public truth, that, yeah. and the truth begins to develop and emerge from the continual practice of civil uh, and reasoned discourse. Now, again, this sounds so utopian in the moment we're at right now, and thus you watch PBS. But <laughs> well, you know, it's an interesting. For instance, um, the lack of a civil discourse has really hurt, for instance, the abortion debate. Because I think you end up having both sides making statements that are not quite true or are, are generalizing in a way that distorts reality. Um, again, I, I won't quote him. I won't try to give his argument justice one way or the other. But Louis C.K. in his most recent special of it's on Netflix starts out, starts out his comedy routine talking about abortion. That's and, how I always get some laughs. Yeah, yeah. And it's there's a lot. I won't – again, he – he says abortion's either one of two things, and that a lot of the way we talk about it is not really comprehensible or not it doesn't make sense from a logical perspective. And so I think, you know, there's a sense where it's exactly what you illustrated. There needs to be an opportunity for us to be able to say, all right, given these things, this is what we think can be true, or here is a legitimate argument based on this kind of you know, the kind of thing we're talking about. Uh and I think that's where both rhetoric and and logic, both classic philosophy and sophistry, really need each other in in a kind of a balance. Absolutely, yeah. I think that that's and this it's the sort of thing that and ideally in the in places like the Christian Church, this should be modeled more. But all too often, it, it it's just as bad or worse. It sometimes you know you go on social media and and read some of these blog posts that are you know, saying why this is heretical or why Richard Rohr is, you know, the, it's going to be the undoing of um, Christianity because right. he writes about the Trinity. And, and these things are not done in a spirit of generosity or really genuine inquiry. There's really oftentimes something presupposed at the start. And then the argument is just enforcing what is already <laughs> presupposed as true and right and certain in the beginning. So there's no real, it's not an invitation to a journey 
together, you know, come let us reason together. It's yeah. not that in, in any sense of the word all too often. No, it's, it's uh, again, I have to paraphrase an unnamed source that said to you there, they just wrote a book with a clear argument for a question that doesn't matter to you. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. think there's a lot, I think there's a lot of that out there. I mean, it, it does degenerate into name calling, uh, excommunicating, uh, if not literally, figuratively. And uh, the truth, the truth is not served. The other thing, to be honest, is looking at our own, uh, at least in this religious realm, all of us make moves that are contrary to the letter of the law or the uh, meaning in the broad sense, meaning metaphorically to the letter of scripture, or for that matter, that are inconsistent with whatever theological tradition we're oh, in. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And and often there's good reasons to do that. And I think sometimes, rather than looking at, okay, why are we not why are we not being consistent with what we say we yeah, believe? Theological consistency is not something to always be praised. It's not. It's not no. always a virtue. But no, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of the narrow mind," said Emerson. Yeah, and, and Chesterton said that all sane people hold contradictions and true. It's only the truly insane that are perfectly logical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think too that one thing I I would hope that is a gift in this regard that, that the Christian Church has is the idea of justification by faith. That we're not justified by our ideas, and our ideas don't need to send our, determine our value or do our identity work. And so, when you know that, you can hold them a little more loosely and lightly. You don't have to. You don't have to like go, you know, to the grave with it. You know, you're going to take this idea out of my hands over my dead body. You know, I think that when we realize that we we don't have to justify ourselves, like in that parable, mm-hmm. the Good Samaritan, says the scribe asked this to justify himself. himself yeah. When we realize that we've been justified, then I think we can actually honestly go into conversations with open hands and without weapons. I agree. And if you stop and think, how many times did P- Jesus say to people, your faith has made you well, to people who had like misguided faith? Yeah. If you stop and think the content, you know, I believe, help me in my unbelief, the woman with the issue of blood, if I just touch the hem of his garment, that was superstitious. I mean, you go, you go through, and I think Halleck, and I, I'm paraphrasing him, but Halleck said, he doesn't think God is that concerned about what we believe. What God really wants us to do is for us to love God. Uh, because if God was so concerned about exactly what we believed, then heaven might be as small as some of you think it is. Mm-hmm. 